Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In our last episode, we heard from a British scientist who believes we need to pay greater attention to the risks technology poses to the survival of our civilization. This week, we hear from a career civil servant who is leading Singapore's drive towards digital government. We don't think that there is any significant backlash. Singapore has been a very technologically advanced nation, and our citizens are generally receptive to most of the advancements. Anything that actually makes things more convenient, helpful to them, I think has been great. That was Jacqueline Poe, head of Singapore's digital agency, GovTech. I spoke to her during a recent visit to her modernist offices in the nation-state. Welcome to Tectonic. Thank you very much for joining us. I wondered if you could start by just telling us about GovTech. What do you do? Thank you very much. In Singapore, we set up this organisation called the Government Technology Agency about you know, more than a year ago, but really pulling together very important parts of government who have been working on digital transformation, on Smart Nation, which is our national initiative that goes beyond smart cities to say, what would it be for a nation to be really a digital society, a digital economy, and a digital government? What does it mean? We believe that technology offers a huge amount of potential for transformation, whether it's in the field of economic competitiveness or whether it is to solve the key problems that face many urban societies. Singapore is one of the examples of you know, what problems or opportunities there can be in um, highly dense urban uh, city situations. And we're facing more of that in more and more cities in the world today. So let me give you some examples. In Singapore, we face demographic challenges. We have an aging population. That's also not uncommon in many other Asian and European cities. So the questions we've been asking ourselves is how can we help our population age well? How can we help them stay healthy and productive for longer? In Singapore, we face issues such as congestion and dealing with traffic in a very, very small island that we're on. And this is also something that other cities face. And we're working very hard at seeing how digital technologies can actually help us combine the kind of data that we get from sensors, the data that we get from numerous kind of sources to be able to plan better and to make interventions that are a bit different. Could you give me some examples? What are you enabling here? And you have this particular philosophy of outside in, I believe, that you're focusing very much on how you can help users and citizens of Singapore. How are you doing that? In Singapore, we, uh, for example, in areas like uh, transportation, we're looking at the use of autonomous vehicles. We've committed to uh, starting a couple of autonomous precincts, autonomous vehicle heavy precincts by 2022. So we're actually on the way to achieving that goal by having a number of test beds throughout the city where we're testing autonomous buses, we're testing autonomous cars and other vehicles, we're testing shuttles, so that we can actually make last mile transportation a reality without the need for everyone to own their own vehicle. And I believe that companies like New Autonomy from the US have based a lot of their activities here because of that enabling environment. Is that That's right? correct. New Autonomy came out of an initiative with MIT called SMART. And it was an alliance between Singapore and MIT. And we're really glad to see that they've been uh, having the success that they've had and are now with Delphi, I believe. 
And how is that going? I mean, how do people here react when they see these autonomous cars driving around the streets? I think that there's always a certain amount of adjustment. And I think the pilots are still not in the most crowded parts of the city as yet. But people actually have been a lot more fairly oblivious to the fact whether something is autonomous or not. We've also had a range of other innovations that have actually been very prevalent in the city, such as bike sharing. Through I've seen that numerous, on, the, on the streets. Yes, you I'm sure you've seen bikes everywhere in Singapore. So Singapore really was not a bike riding country even one or two years ago. And out of nowhere, simply because of digital technologies, I think, dockless bike sharing has just become the norm here and everyone's used it. And it's you know QR code based, it's GPS based. And for the government and for GovTech, what we do is we work with the Ministry of Transport and the Municipal Services Office, and we've created an app called OneService. OneService was initially created mainly to ensure that citizens did not have to go to different government agencies or know which government agency to approach if they had a pothole or a dead animal or litter or they needed some part of municipal street furniture painted. So they didn't have to do that. They just went to our app or our website and then they just filled it in and there was a commitment to clear it by that time by whichever agency was responsible and that would be automatically pinged to that agency and we used a lot of data analytics to predict new problems and so, so on. So this is government as a service. So it's really government as a service. So we hadn't actually planned on this whole bike sharing issue to be something that we were going to onboard on the app when we created it because there were no bikes. But because we had that platform, it very rapidly became something and the channel by which citizens could report bicycles that were in the wrong place. And this was automatically pumped to the bike sharing operators and they were required to remove them by a certain amount of time. And the bike sharing companies, they're private companies. They are actually and private are they companies. Local? They're Chinese? There are so? local companies and there are foreign companies. And so if you are unhappy with the bike where someone's left it, then you can go onto your app. That's report right. it and then you would ping the operator to... It would be informed it. to the Ministry of Transport who would then inform the operator, but it's a fairly seamless process. Okay, and you were saying that there are other services you deliver, particularly health. Could you talk a bit more about that? What kind of medical or healthcare services are you providing? The government in Singapore has a certain amount of healthcare records that we found would be quite useful to improve population health. And we did this in concert with an agency that we work with called the Health Promotion Board, similar to what we did for the bike sharing and the one service with the Municipal Services Office. So the Health Promotion Board has a number of very interesting initiatives that we've helped them with. One was the National Steps Challenge, where we gave citizens wearables and tracked their movement. We tracked their exercise the number of steps they take. And how's that going? Uh, and that was a lot more, yeah, that's a lot more successful than we had even imagined. There was hundreds and thousands of people got onto this thing and there were incentives for companies to get all their employees on board and then compete against each other, which was quite successful. There's also an app called Health Hub where we are actually putting citizens' healthcare information, their own personal health information, that those of their, say, their children, so it used to be very difficult to get your vaccination records of your child. You would never know whether they were vaccinated against this disease or not. It's not something that off the top of your head, especially if you've got more than one child. And if you go to more than one doctor or pediatrician. 
So what has happened is that because that data is collected into the Health Promotion Board, I can actually just access the entire vaccination record of my children on my phone. And one of the big platforms that GovTech has been working on that enables that is the National Digital ID platform. We've had a national government digital ID since 2003 or 2004, so that's been a very long time coming. But what we've decided to do is to make it open to more uses, open to the private sector to use so that they can easily onboard their customers online. And it's only because the national digital ID, which is a two-factor authentication called SingPass, is sufficiently secure that it is possible to put your health screening records on your phone because you need to be able to identify that it is the right person. And you also have a MyInfo program as well? Yes. What is that? MyInfo is part of the National Digital ID. It is actually a decentralized data vault of personal data of every resident in Singapore. And it's able to pull information from different data hubs on their address and some information they give us, including their phone numbers and emails and other things like tax records, pension records, and so on. This is a very helpful thing to government agencies because it allows for the pre-filling of forms so that we can have and are going towards a really a tell-us-once policy so that you would never have to tell a government department the same thing twice. You just press the button and it forms pre-fill. But it's also useful for the private sector, like banks, to open bank accounts, to open insurance. And now banks, and the eight banks on the system now, are able to completely onboard new clients without having to see them face-to-face. So this has been extremely helpful to the private sector as well. And what safeguards do you put in place to guarantee your citizens' privacy? Because clearly there's a lot of incredibly sensitive information Mm -hmm. in that. So how do you determine what information is accessible or should be accessible by private sector or outside operators and what is sacrosanct to those citizens? Yes, we've actually been very careful about this. Security and privacy concerns are foremost in our mind for a smart nation. In something like MyInfo, we've been very careful to make sure that the identification and authentication process has to be two-factor, it has to be secure, and we're moving towards a PKI for this process. PKI? PKI, Public Key Infrastructure, something that is actually a higher level of security. This is complemented by the fact that the private organization, like a bank, does not automatically have access to all of the individual's records. The individual has to give consent to even open their MyInfo data vault to the bank, and it has to give another layer of consent for all the sensitive information, such as their tax records. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And is this an opt-in service? I mean, if you're a citizen, can you just remain outside of this system? For government services, it's something that is available to government agencies because 
generally we found that citizens do expect that the government should know the important things about them so they don't have to keep asking again and again. But for the private sector, it is an opt-in. It is something that citizens have to give their deliberate and informed consent to be able to unlock. And security clearly is a very big issue with a lot of national identity schemes. I mean, we've seen in India recently that the Aadhaar identification system, they've had problem with data leaks, which has caused quite a furore. So how do you ensure absolutely that your citizens' data is secure? It's putting the PKIs in place that... Yes. I think that you have to go beyond some of the headlines that come about with digital identity and whether that information is secure and what actually has happened in many of those cases. I think what's very important is that there are very clear identification and authentication measures at the front end to make sure the individual is the individual. Then when the data is stored, for us, there is no huge reservoir of personal data anywhere. It doesn't actually ever reside in one place. We do everything through our API gateways, which are made secure. And so what we pull is API calls from very secure databases that have been off the internet and have existed for a long time. So we don't pull citizens' information into any one place. And finally, access control. I think in many of the situations we've seen in some other countries where data has been lost, it's very often a human error. It's the wrong person who's been given access to certain amounts of data or they've leaked it or there's a lot of human error type issues behind data leakage. And these exist even today with or without a digital identity system. And in Singapore, we have a Personal Data Protection Act that looks after this and the cases that have come under enforcement have very often been human error issues. So access control is really very important. GovTech is clearly part of a global phenomenon of open data, and governments are trying to understand the power of data and the digital economy, as you were explaining. I was just looking up on the World Wide Web Foundation. They do a report on open data barometer, and I noticed that Singapore comes 23rd out of 115 countries in terms of open data. How do you assess that performance? Are you happy with that or would you would like to be nearer the top of that table? I think there are a range of open data reports. I sure. think there was a recent one done by the Economist that was actually a very different outcome. So I think you have to take with a pinch of salt which report you choose to use. I think for us, we put a lot of things out there on something called data.gov.sg. We put APIs, we put hundreds and hundreds of data sets that we found to be most useful. We had data blogs, we help people use our open data, we hold hackathons. So I'm fairly sure that we're actually pretty much where we need to be on the rankings we need to be on. And what are some of the most imaginative uses of that data that have come out of the hackathons? Yes, that's really been very interesting. We've actually had interesting companies and use cases formed around what we've done for property and for transportation. Um, Can you say a bit more about that? So there are data sets that we release about property, property prices, how that's moving in various areas, and we actually make that available to the private sector to be able to use that for their own purposes. And apps have been formed around that, there have been commercial usage, We've also unleashed a whole range of data sets on our transport infrastructure, on, I believe, taxis, buses, and those have been used to great effect by a range of apps that help out with, you know, when was the bus coming, you know, wayfinding apps. 
There's a very, very amusing one called Bus Uncle. We have a colloquial form of English called Singlish. <laughs> and this particular app was created, and it's sort of like a chat, and he kind of chats to you in a very colloquial form about what's happening, is your transport coming, and when, and so on. Because that data is available. So it's transformed something that's actually probably very dry, which is data on where buses are at any point of time, to something very engaging, which is an uncle chatting to you at a bus stop. It simulates like an uncle chatting to you at a bus stop about when your bus is coming, but he's absolutely accurate. This is very heartening for us to see these innovations. How do you um, respond to the public on these issues? Are you going out and polling people about what kind of services they want the government to provide, how they can improve them? How are you setting your priorities at GovTech? I think that we do quite a bit of talking to citizens in terms of what kind of experience they're looking for, what kind of services they think are more important. And we do a lot of work internally as well, just assessing the quality of our digital services and more broadly about what platforms we need to create to enable other services to be provided on top of the things that we offer as government. Because frankly, the government is rarely out there providing some of the things that actually the private sector or the people sector should provide. But we have the advantage of being able to create the platforms, the microservices, the stack with all the infrastructure for others to develop on so, so we talk all the time about Facebook or Amazon being a platform, mm-hmm. but your vision really is of the government being a platform. Correct, correct. And I'll give you some examples. We are busy rolling out something right now called the National Trade Platform, where we're trying to digitize all the logistics and trade data coming to Singapore. We've been very good at this for many years with TradeNet and so on, and the single window. And we figure if we are able to digitize that data and put it on our National Trade Platform, We have a whole range, and we're already onboarding a whole range of private sector businesses to be value-added service providers, whether in areas like trade finance or logistics or legal services to the trading sector. They are on the platform, and they can actually consume that nicely digitalized packets of data about what cargo is coming in from where, with what content, and they convert that into services that they can offer. That's the trade platform. We're quite pleased about that. We're also doing something very similar in education, where we've rolled out the student learning space as a platform for all teachers in Singapore, for students from the age of 12 to the age of 18. So this is over 350 schools. And they use this platform to share all the materials they have on teaching. Singapore is quite well known in the PISA rankings. We're number one. And that material is shared among teachers from all the schools and it is actually made very alive to students who also have digital devices to take polls to learn on these devices and to watch YouTube videos that have been curated. So whole lesson plans, test papers and various teaching devices are on this platform. But we are also going to be inviting the private sector to come onto these platforms to add on Again, their value-added services, whether it's data analytics or gamification. So let's say gamification of physics, um, videos, and so on. So as to make this more alive and also to have that public-private partnership on that platform. What is the ultimate vision of the smart nation? Where do you think this revolution is going to take us in five, ten years' time? Is everything going to be 
government as a service, do you think? We would like for government, because we have so many touch points with citizens, whether it's in terms of housing, because a lot of housing in Singapore is public housing, whether in education or transportation or healthcare, we want those services to be seamless, to be extremely convenient to whoever uses it. We want those options to be there to complete transactions faster that they have to do. So really that people can have time for things that they enjoy more rather than, you know, form filling, doing your taxes and so on, which they have to interact with government. We also want to be able to use data and make data more available to be able to derive more insights, I think, about the running of our city, whether it's sensor data for smart facilities and building management or transportation at a large scale or healthcare in our healthcare system. So we think that the use of data can provide insights that can make things better, can actually change policies. Final question. It's obvious what all the convenience and the benefits to the citizens are from these services that you can provide. Is there any public backlash against this that people feel that the state is encroaching too far into their lives or people are happy that these services are now being delivered more efficiently and cheaply and conveniently? We don't think that there is any significant backlash. Singapore has been a very technologically advanced nation and our citizens are generally receptive to most of the advancements. Anything that actually makes things more convenient, helpful to them, I think has been great. Recently, we rolled out a parking app that allows you to park anywhere on any roadside in Singapore. We created that in only a few months and we use GPS and it's been incredibly well received. But what we do find is that for certain initiatives, for example, cashless payments, there are groups of individuals who are a bit more resistant and want to keep to existing practices. Maybe that's partly because they are from another generation and they need a little bit more education to make them more comfortable with new technologies. So we are embarking on a lot of initiatives in the realm of digital readiness to ensure that no part of our society is left behind. Singapore, you know, we often say we went from third world to first in a very short period of time. So a lot of this was compressed. And there are many generations with many different mindsets in the same island that we are trying to digitally transform. So I think that it is completely a responsibility of government to make sure that every part of our society feels comfortable with the pace of change and is able to easily use services that are available to them. And if they can't, that they have other options available and they have means by which they can learn and have access to everything they need. Thank you very much, Jacqueline. That was a really fascinating conversation and I'm off to try one of your autonomous cars. (laughs) We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And we'd love it if you were to write a review to help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.